Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, we were away on holiday last Sunday in Scotland, and we missed being at Grace Church very much. Uh, always miss being away and love being here. So good to be back with you. But by Wednesday night, I was very worried about how this preaching would turn out today. Our whole family were ill with the virus. Um, it featured fatigue and a hacking cough and a sore throat. And then I got raging conjunctivitis in one eye. So I had one eye that was raw and pink and kind of glassy and weeping and drooping. It looked kind of weird and monstrous. And I came into the house and the kids saw me and Rosie looked a little bit horrified and a little bit sort of slightly scared but also sympathetic and said, oh, Dad, you're right. And then William saw me and he's 16 and he said, wow, that's really cool. You look like a, you look like a Bond villain. <laughs> so I never wanted to be, I wanted to look more like Bond, not the villain. I spoke to Joe Byrne, one of our elders here. He said, you need to look at conjunctivitis.com. It's a, he said it's a sight for sore eyes. <laughs> this is the kind of help I get from the leaders in this church. I was really in a bad way Thursday morning. I thought I'm going to die. You know, I wanted my mum. Then it dawned on me, this is perfect. It couldn't be better because we're in Genesis chapter 4 and 5. And we're thinking about life outside of Eden. Life in the broken world, the fallen world. What better way to preach on it than as a physical wreck? Now we know, if you've been coming along or tuning in, chapters 1 and 2, we've seen this wonderful portrait of the loving creator creating a good world, the world we all want, a world of beauty and peace and harmony and order and abundance and plenty and provision. We've thought about humans being what we are. We're made in God's image to rule the world under him, to be in relationship with each other and with him. And we've been given uh, rationality and gifts to rule it and to develop it and to fill it with other image bearers. And we thought about humans purpose to work to do meaningful activity in the world as we fill it to do that with care and creativity and competence and then we thought about chapter three temptation a whole week we thought about the nature of temptation to doubt God's goodness his love and character to think that maybe he hasn't got our best interests at heart to doubt his words to us and to invent our own story and then we thought about sin and its consequences and last week Rich took us into Genesis chapter 4, where we see this darkness spreading. We find that um, Adam's son, Cain, is just like his dad. Uh, Rich used a great old uh, prog rock, uh, rock song, uh, which, where the singer says, My son is just like me. And this is horrifying, because Adam's son is taking the self-centeredness and self-absorption and rebellion against God to another level and it's escalation because Cain becomes the first murderer. He kills his brother Abel in a jealous rage. So after the beauty and the harmony and peace the Bible begins with, we see which was human life as it's meant to be. Uh, we now see something horrific and sickening. It's a bit like watching a car crash in slow motion. Chapter 3 is like a child greedily seeking some sweets but eating down some rat poison like a teenager in the prime of life being lured into taking a drug overdose. The end of innocence, the end of uh, that pure life that they had, and the introduction of death into the world. Death is alienation from God, exile from his presence, 
decay and finally ceasing to be. And so in this section that Rachel read for us, we see this conditions of the world rolling out from this, the fall to the world we now experience. Now, you know what? When you first read it, it does sound a bit of a strange grab bag of things in chapter 4. You've got uh, Cain making love. Making love? This is the Bible. Never used to say that. Always used to say Cain lay with his wife. It's getting a bit more real, I suppose. It's uh, Cain making love and then building a city. Some stuff about a family tree. Then some stuff about people inventing animal husbandry, raising livestock. And then there's somebody else um, making music, playing stringed instruments and pipes. Then some more genealogy, people making tools. What is all this about? Why is it here? One thing we can be sure of is that this writing is not mere information. Like all of Scripture, it is written to change us. The purpose of the Bible is not mere information, but transformation. Whole Bible is written to change us. Every word of it, it says, is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So what is this strange section supposed to do in our lives? I think it's really teaching us about grace. Grace and our need of it. And I think there are two kinds of grace. Uh, Theologians have distinguished between them. One they call common grace and one they call saving grace or redemptive grace. Common grace and saving grace. But first of all, let's back up a little bit. What is grace? It was quite important to us. We even named the church after it. What is grace? Grace is undeserved and over-generous favor. Undeserved and over-generous favor. Great kindness to people who don't deserve it. That is grace. It's such a powerful Central concept in the Bible. We named the church after it. We want to live in it. We've sung about it. Grace, faith for my sins. And here we see there's a difference between common grace, which everybody experiences, and saving grace. So I've only got two headings today. And the first one is common grace. And the second one is saving grace. You remember that? Common grace. Right, let's look at this. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 4, Cain was then building a city. Cain built a city. The first city, get this, is built by the first murderer. The first city is built by the first murderer. What does that mean? Now we know from previous weeks that Cain was the first murderer, experienced a curse from God. He was cast out and made an exile, a wanderer on the earth. And he has a great sense of danger. And exposure. He knows only too well that anyone could take his life. After all, he took his own brother's life. There's maybe a sense too of uh, futility, meaninglessness. What if life can be taken so easily? What is it worth? What does it all mean? And cities in the ancient world are places of protection and places of permanence. They're protection because they're walled. You ever go and visit an archaeology, you know, these sites they've dug up of ancient cities? They always have these huge thick walls. And the gate is a really critical place because that's where the, the judges would sit and determine if people can come in or out. You know, and in, in this country, we used to dig around um, and fill a, 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 a trench with water to make it safe. And the cities, at night, the gate would shut. They'd be safe. There's protection there. There's strength in numbers. It's not just you and your family living out in a little homestead somewhere. 
you're there, you're all together, you've got the, uh, the troops and everybody's geared up. So there's protection in the city. There's also permanence because nomads move from place to place with their flocks. They, ca- they encamp, they, they light their fires in the morning, they pack up and move on to the next place. The wind sweeps over the fires, no trace of them in the world. But the city is a place that you could, you could feel some more permanence. And Cain here wants to build a city, and it's very interesting. It says in verse 17, he named it after his son Enoch. Why name it after his son? Some people have said that this city is a self-absorbed, self-worshipping place. But if it was that, I think he would have called it Cainville or Cainchester. Why name it after his son? I think Cain is looking to the future. He wants to believe there is a future. He doesn't name it after himself. He names it after his son. He establishes a line, a dynasty that will have a place, a permanent place in the world. I think he's trying to stake a claim on the future, trying to leave a legacy. The first city built by the first murderer. So how are we to understand cities? What does this text want us to think? Now the problem is, as scholars have observed, the text of Genesis is very, the fancy word is laconic. It, it, it's very um, concise. It's economical with words. And often things are mentioned and they don't comment on them. They just mention it. And so you're left to figure out for yourself what the real meaning is. There's no comment. Now some have concluded, well, Cain built a city. Cain? Therefore, cities are wicked places. They have a dubious lineage. Just look at the founder. One writer says, Cain builds a city in an attempt, it would seem, to find safety from those who would kill him. Cities, listen to this. This is not me. This is this writer. Cities come to figure prominently in the Bible as the expression of human wickedness. So very negative view of cities there. They're just the place for human wickedness. But is that the conclusion we're supposed to draw? Is that the whole story? Now, two principles here for interpreting the Bible. The first thing you do when you've got a question is to look very carefully at the immediate context. What's going on in the immediate, just around the bit that you're, you're worried about and in the book that it's in. And once you've done that, you look at the far away context. You look at the whole Bible and its teaching on that subject. Now, the immediate context here is very interesting. Verse 17, we've got families. Cain making love, his wife gets pregnant, gives birth. There's life going on. There's family, kids being born, which is a good thing. In verse 20, we've got the introduction of nomadic culture. Uh, The father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. These are nomads. They develop their own culture that they can live They can live on the earth through their livestock and and developing care of animals and and building flocks and herds so that they can actually survive and have a future through that. That's what nomads do. Then in verse 21, we've got his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. We've got the development of music. Now, that's really interesting. This is something that's non-essential for life. You can live without music. I know it's hard. But like, this is a beautiful thing, something that, that gives us joy, music. And here we have the beginning of art. The arts are being hinted at here. And then the very next verse, uh, Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. So here we've got technology. 
taking raw material out of the earth. And who knows the first time this ever happened. Wouldn't you love to have been there? A bunch of cavemen sitting around. Somebody throws a rock on the fire and it turns into bronze. And someone else goes, oh, you know, quick, you know, make it into an arrowhead or something. And, 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 and they, but they can make these tools. And then you've got tools, you can build things. So we have this kind of very, very short, uh, not many words wasted, but you can see here, civilization, culture, art, music, family, development of ways of living, animal husbandry, all coming out here of the line of Cain. Notice. Coming out of the line of Cain. And then you've got, finally there, Tubal Cain's sister was Neymar, who went on to play for Barcelona. <laughs> the invention of football. Now that's quite a list of things. The family, the animal husbandry, music, arts, tools, technology. Are any of these things intrinsically evil? No, they're not. You know that. They're, they're neutral. They can be used for great good. But they can be turned to evil, depending on the human agent who uses them. Just think about the cultivation of animal life. To serve humanity for food and clothing is a good thing. But the abuse of animal life through cruel practices, through neglect of animals, or through uh, treating them very badly in, in factories, is a wicked thing. The Old Testament law even had verses covering the welfare of animals. There's one great verse that says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. Even the ox treading out the grain is allowed to dip its head down and eat some. Technology can be used for great good or great evil. Through technology, we've been able to fight disease, invent a travel by jet airplanes, and develop Wikipedia. We've also developed nuclear and biological weapons. Technology can tell you how to make an atomic bomb, but not whether you should. So the immediate context here suggests that even though the first city is built by Cain, look at all the other things that come out of Cain's line which themselves are neutral and could, could possess the power for great good, but could also be used for evil. Now, what about the wider Bible context? That's the immediate one. The wider context in the Bible, cities can be centers of evil. I'll just mention a few of them. Uh, the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel, a place that was God-defiant. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were places of great injustice and wickedness in which lives were not safe and in which people, according to the prophet Ezekiel, exploited the poor in order to make themselves affluent and rich, but they had no care for the needy. And then the, the poster child of wicked cities in the Bible is Babylon, a cruel and terrible place. But cities also can be places that are reclaimed for God. There was a pagan city. It was called Jerusalem. It was dis dispossessed of its Canaanite inhabitants, who, by the way, practiced infant sacrifice as part of their religion. And that place became the city of God's people, a place of light, of truth. And after the exile from Jerusalem, God's people were sent out to all places, Babylon, and they were instructed by the prophet Jeremiah how to live there. You probably know these words. This is what the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage 
so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So there's a pretty positive portrayal of life in cities for God's people, acknowledging that they are imperfect institutions. Finally, how does the Bible end? We're right at the beginning here in Genesis. What about the end of the Bible? Well, it doesn't go back to a return to the garden. Some people say that there's a, we go back to Eden. We don't. We go forward to a city. The Bible ends with a vision of a new Jerusalem, a glorious city that's described as being like Eden. It has got trees of life in it and uh, rivers of life flowing through it, but it is a city. It's a garden city. So Cain built a city, a place of protection, and he thought of permanence. Even Cain, the first murderer, was allowed to live and create something with potential for good. This is what uh, we call common grace. Common because it's common to everyone. It's common because its benefits are experienced by the whole human race without distinction between one and another, whether you believe in God you don't believe in God, whether you're agnostic, you, we all share and benefit from common grace. It is undeserved and it's given by God. As a theologian called Louis Burkhoff, he wrote these words, common grace curbs the destructive power of sin. It maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe. It makes orderly life possible. It distributes gifts and talents among people. It promotes the development of science and art. And it showers untold blessings upon the children of men. Common grace. But look to other aspects of Cain's line. Verse 19. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. And then down to verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. You get the flavor here? Only a few generations out from Eden, and we have somebody violating the principle of marriage, one man, one woman for life, and utterly contemptuous of human life. And he says, you know what? If Cain was bad, I'm badder. If Cain killed his brother, I'd kill someone just for, for injuring me. Lamech is a truly vile person. He's probably the first gangster. And this violence here that he speaks of, 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 of wounding and injuring and vengeance, uh, unlimited vengeance, links in with a broader problem, which is, as you noticed when we were reading chapter 5, everybody dies. There's a culture of death. Everybody dies. And that's why common grace is not enough. We need something more. We need saving grace. So my first point was common grace. Second point, saving grace. Everybody dies. You read it. They, they, they lived, they had children, they, they lived to some more, and then they died. Boom, boom, boom. It's like a drumbeat, a rhythm, flowing on through this chapter until we got to Enoch. Now, what is going on in here? Why does the Bible have all these family trees in it? called genealogies. What, what's going on? Now, one aspect of it here in Genesis, 
I'm just going to give you a bit of an overview of the book, is that Genesis is actually structured around family trees. Structured around them. If you look in chapter 5 there and verse 1, it says, this is the written account of Adam's family line. And then if you were to turn over to uh, chapter 6, verse 9, at the very next page, you see under the bit that says Noah and the flood, this is the account of Noah and his family. And then if you were to turn over to um, page 12, chapter 11, verse 10, you'd see another reference here. This is the account of Shem's family line. And actually, we could go on through the whole of Genesis because there are 10 uses of this word translated family line. It's a word that in the Hebrew language is toledot. Toledot. And it's a bit like these are the chapter headings. So the whole of the Genesis book is structured around these family trees. It's really like this is a book of, of genealogies with some narrative in between. And that's what moves it forward are these family trees. Now, what's the point? They're selective. You notice in verse, uh, back to chapter 5 with me. What do you notice about this description of Adam's family? Verse 3, Adam had lived 130 years. He had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he named him Seth. What's wrong with that? Anyone? He's had two other sons already. Cain and Abel. So what happened to them? It's selective. It doesn't mention everyone. If you, I can read this to you or you can look at it. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 over to the New Testament, which is page uh, 965. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So how many generations from Abraham to Jesus? Abraham, David, Jesus. It's all done in less than 100 years. It's selective. He's not naming everyone. Uh, and that, uh, actually, you need to realize that because you can come to wrong conclusions about the age of the earth if you think that this is all-inclusive. Uh, a famous archbishop, Archbishop Usher, who was a fine mathematician and scholar, added it all up and calculated that the creation of the world was in the year 4004 BC on an October morning at 9.30 a.m., didn't commit to the minute. And he did so because he'd worked out all these things and, and lined them all up. Didn't realize it was selective. But as we've seen, genealogies are selective. What is this one showing us? Well, it's showing us that everybody dies. That refrain, then he died, then he died, then he died. There's that, it's like a drumbeat. No matter who you are, no matter how many fruit and veg you eat of your five a day, you're going to die. No matter how talented you are and how gifted, you're going to die. No matter how rich you become, and some billionaires realize this too late, you're going to die. No matter how much people like you and how popular you are, you're going to die. You can't take it with you. And this reminds us that we need something a lot more than just common grace to live in this world playing music, having children, raising livestock, and then dying. If you've ever been to a funeral, if you've ever stood by a graveside, you know we need something more. Everything inside us cries out. I've been quite fortunate. 
not experienced much bereavement in my life. But I remember my grandmother dying. And I was probably about the age of 10, 8 or 9 years old. Going into my parents' bedroom. It's feeling like the bottom dropped out of the world. What? We may get used to it. But we know we don't want to die. In any sense of the word. We don't want to experience death in relationships. Is there somebody who, who won't speak to you at the moment? Someone who's cut you out? Have you, had, have you got that experience? That's death in a relationship. We don't like it. We don't want, we don't want that kind of death. We don't, want, we don't want death in our bodies, experiencing medical problems. Some people here struggling with long-term conditions. Are you experiencing death daily? You feel like the walking dead? We, we don't want to experience that. We don't want to, our life to end. We don't want it to end. I remember once I was in Cambodia visiting some temples in a place called um, Angkor Wat or near there. And I had the Lonely Planet guide with me of all the temples and all the maps and stuff. And I was trying to get away from this guy. He was trying to sell me postcards. And everywhere I went, he was there. I couldn't shake him off. So eventually I basically ran off into the jungle near this temple. And as I was there, I was completely lost in a foreign land on my own. And I, I looked around and there was this big wall, ancient wall, temple going up and then there were all these trees and I thought I got the guidebook out and I looked in it and I opened this page and there was a box in the, I'm not kidding you, this is Lonely Planet Guide to Cambodia, there's a box it was, uh, the text was in bold there was a, a box all around it and it said warning, capital letters do not stray from the paths anywhere in Cambodia, even near the temples because there are still unexploded landmines and I'm sitting there thinking, why didn't I read the book before now? And then I'm thinking, where's the path? How do I get back? And you know, I'm going like this. <laughs> I suddenly realized I could die here, a long way from my family. I don't want to die. What hope is there for me? We want to live. We want to live to the full, don't we? We want to live. And yet the strongest of us only makes 80 years and some. Now there is a glimmer of hope here. Chapter 5, verse 24, you noticed it when we read it. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. The rhythm gets interrupted. One person doesn't keep time with the drummer. His name is Enoch. It's tantalizing. What does it mean? He walked faithfully with God. What happened to him? He didn't die. He was no more. God took him away. What does this mean? Somehow translated into another realm? We don't know. It's just a, a faint glimmer of hope, just a ray of hope, hope of life. Somehow, there's something, there's another alternative, but you notice it will only come supernaturally. It doesn't come to everyone. It doesn't come through common grace. It comes through saving grace, the intervention of God into human affairs, special redemptive grace. Somehow, someone can have eternal life. Don't you want that? Now, you know, we read this verse from a position of immense privilege. Because we know that the whole Bible doesn't point to Enoch for hope. That would lead us to this kind of a message. Do your best to walk faithfully with God and you too might escape death. But you know, we are too wicked for that and we have unfaithful hearts. None of us, if we're truly honest, walks faithfully with God even for a single day. We have divided hearts, and so we need saving grace, uh, more than common grace. 
more, more even than saving, maybe I should say amazing grace. Because this book points us to Jesus Christ. He alone knew what it was to walk faithfully with God. But Jesus Christ was not translated painlessly to a better world. He was led shamefully to a wooden cross and nailed to it, naked in shame and agony. He, who had walked faithfully with God, was walked to Calvary. And there he took your death sentence. And he didn't merely die physically, although that was suffering enough. Far worse was the suffering of his soul. At the cross, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced rejection and abandonment by God. His great soul was torn apart, we might say. He endured the wrath and anger of a holy God, poured out on him relentlessly that was due to our sins. He was exiled and pushed away from God's presence and cast out, utterly alone. And he did it so that we might live. Amen? So that we might live in the future, in the world to come, in resurrection life. Jesus interrupts the drumbeat of the genealogy from, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died too, and then he rose. And he rose, the Bible says, as the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Letter to the Hebrews says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So we no longer need to be afraid. Saving grace is available through Jesus Christ. So what are the implications of this teaching? For Christians here, Christian friends, your relationship to this world has now changed. Your relationship to the things of common grace has changed. Think about those things that people look to to save them. People look to family. They think, if I can only have a family and a good family and the children and the children grow up well and, and, and represent us well, and, and, and then that, that'll somehow make me somebody and make my life okay. But a, a family will not save you. Some people look to their art, to their music, or their painting, their poetry, their creativity. Somehow that's going to fulfill them totally. But it never does. It can't save you. Some people look to technology. If I've got this uh, array of technology, these things, this kind of car, this gadget, this technology, then my life will be easier and then my life will be peaceful and good. It'll, I'll be saved through it. It doesn't work. Some people look to the city. Come to the city, I'll make my name, I'll get a great degree, I'll get a really good job, I'll be somebody. It can't save you. But Christian people, now that your future is secure because of Jesus, you're set free to use all those good things of common grace to serve others. They can't save you. Only the saving grace of God can, and you receive that grace by faith alone in Jesus. So putting all of this together, what does it mean for our relationship to our city. Cain built a city. We live in a city. We've thought about cities as places of protection and permanence. They're also centers of influence in the world. 
They're often centers of government and business and education. Here we are, Manchester, the biggest, I think, residential student population of any city in this country. Tens of thousands of students from all around the world coming here because it's a center of excellence for education. It's also a center for the arts. This is where a lot of the greatest music has come from for many years. Center for culture, center for, th for free thought, ideas. This is a place of great opportunity. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller says that you get more image of God per square mile or per square inch in the city than in the countryside. So if you want to see the glory of God in creation, you need to go to Longsight. Longsight, the highest density of population in Manchester. Now, this is interesting. The census projections for the population of urban South Manchester for this year, this is what the, sent the projections were for these wards, Burnage, Chalton, Didsbury, West Didsbury, Fallowfield, Hume, Levenshume, Longsight, Mossside, Old Moat, Rushome, Wally Range, Withington, was that there would be 200,000 people living in those 10 wards by this year. At least 200,000. 200,000 people. Great diversity there. Great, great opportunity. 200,000 people. Just think about that. All those people on one huge playing field. Just in this area where you can walk around it in a few minutes. This is what some commentators have said about city life. Uh, they commented that uh, almost 180,000 people move into cities around the world every day. That is nearly 5.5 million people a month. 50% of Africa's population will be urban by the year 2050. In the next 20 years, China's cities will add another 350 million people to their population. 22% of the world's population lives in 600 cities. The age of nations is over. The new urban age has begun. One commentator says, the cities are where the people are. In the course of less than 300 years, the world has shifted from one in which 3% of people live in cities to one in which 80% are resident in urban areas. If the Christian church does not learn new modes of urban ministry, we will find ourselves on the outside looking in. The gospel of Jesus must call a new generation of committed Christians into the cities. As these new numbers make clear, there is no choice. But here's the interesting thing. Evangelical Christians often don't want to live in cities. They don't tend to want to live in cities, talking globally. There's a pull of the comfortable suburb. You get a big garden, affordable house, and a grammar school. There's a pull of the small town, the village. There's this thing, we'll move out when we get enough money. Now, I'm not saying anything against those places or undervaluing gospel ministry in them, but I do want to put a stone in your shoe it makes it difficult to walk around without thinking about it. If most of the world is moving into cities, and cities are places of great influence, where should Christians be? Where should Christians be? If you want to influence a culture, you've got to be in the cities. Back to South Manchester for a moment. Think about those 200,000 people. 
What percentage of Christians would it take to change the culture of our area, to influence it profoundly with the gospel? Some people have argued that 10% is a tipping point in a culture because 10% can influence not just an individual, but a whole society. So in urban South Manchester, 10%, if 10% were attending a gospel church, that would be 20,000 people in those areas. 20,000 people. That's 100 churches of 200. That's 100 grace church size. Or 20 churches of 1,000. How are we doing? You see the call on us as a church? This is why Grace Church is a vision to plant. That's why we're doing this plant in Chalton. We want to plant a church, but not just one. We want to plant churches that are born pregnant. It's a pretty gross phrase. <laughs> churches that are born pregnant, that, that right from the start, they want to plant again. Because we know that we can't do this job alone. So God willing, next year we're going to plant a church in Chalton. We have encountered such difficulty with this so far. We've had major problems with the home office and getting visas for our worker. Major problems. Those of you who are members know this. Please pray for this. Uh, some people have been saying we'd love to do corporate prayer meetings. Good. Come to the prayer meeting. When is it? Tonight. Eight o'clock. Where is it? The Spread Eagle. See Michael Buckley be lying on the ground like this. <laughs> Please come, 8 o'clock. Pray for this. Chalton, a place that itself can reach 55,000 people. Come to the prayer meeting. We have a vision to plant. We also have a vision to partner. If you've been around our church for any time, we have so many partners. It's like a barn dance. do si do we want to partner with others. We can't do it alone. We want to partner with the Alexandria Library and the Friends of Platfields Park and wherever else we are to be involved, to partner with the food bank, with the allotments, with Laurel Court Care Home, with Old Moat Park, with events like this non-fire party to plant churches to serve this city for the glory of our King Jesus. So let me just finish with a simple question what about you? Have you thought about your future? Have you thought about where you're going to make your home and build your life? Have you thought about your legacy? And let me ask you, will you stay? Will you stay here? Commit to being in Manchester. Not just for two, three years, but for the long term. Some of you here are students. You may only just got here. Let me ask you, will you stay? Build a life here for the glory of Jesus. And bless this city. Let's pray. Cain built a city. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Father in heaven, we are recipients of such great grace. We actually are so surrounded by it and swimming in it, sometimes we forget how blessed we are. And we don't always thank you for the good things that we receive. Forgive us for that in gratitude. We can be like spoiled children. Those of us who've come to this immense privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, can remember the day when he broke into our lives and changed us, called us to follow him, has been with us by our side the whole time. Those of us who've experienced that are of all people most blessed.
And we thank you for him, that he walked faithfully with you and walked faithfully even to the cross. And therefore, we don't need to uh, face that fear of death, that death sentence that was uh, inaugurated there in Genesis 3. Lord, we uh, have thought about Cain building a city and how he probably did it with completely impure motives. But we want to see this city built to be a place where Jesus is known and made much of, where he's loved, and that it is a place filled with communities of light. So please grant us strength and courage and faithfulness and perseverance in the race. And please, would you answer, hear our prayers to fill this place with more churches. We ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.